0: I want to, uh, as a, we're continuing our series. It's a Q&A series, so you can uh, submit questions at any point of the message that you have a question. You can do it at that web address there. Go to quest.org slash share. And if you're not already on Wi-Fi, it's just look for one of them that says Cafe 2.405.0 out there. They're all free. No login required. Just hook on and you can share a question anytime. B.J. Dinsmore is going to join me today to answer as many questions as we have time for at the end of the service. So we're going to start today with a weird dinner party question. If you were a bird, which bird would you be? A hawk, a dove, or a chicken? How many hawks? You're a hawk? How many would be a dove? And how many of you are brave enough to admit you'd be a chicken? <laughs> yeah, we got a few. We got a few. So today's message is called Hawks, Doves, and Chickens, and we're dealing with a, a really a, just a simple question. It's, it, it's just one that's had clarity around it for centuries. There's been no debate at all whatsoever, and if you believe me, I'm selling the book Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bridge to you at the end of service today. There's a political cartoonist uh, that put it in uh, a good form, We got the hawks, we got the doves, and then we got the I voted for the war, before I voted against the war, before I voted for the war, before I voted against the war, and we got the roosters, the chickens doing that one and stuff. And, And what we're talking about today is that question of war and peace and what the Bible teaches us about that topic. Is there such a thing as just war? Or does the Bible tell us we're all to be pacifists? This has been a great debate, and it's a great debate in recent years among our culture, isn't it? Maybe... Uh, some, of, some of you have been involved in that, and maybe some of your feelings have been more like a the rooster because you felt like you had a solid answer, then you questioned it, and then you went back and forth a little bit, and you, you can identify a little bit with some of our politicians going back and forth on some of this argument lately. Since 9-11, I've heard so many people interviewed on both sides of the equation of this topic, uh, all the way from people who are trying to sell hunting tags for hunting terrorists That you can put in your window of your car and replica things all the way to other people, especially when we lived in Oregon, that uh, argued that uh, if you would just invite a terrorist to dinner and talk, everything would be okay. Most of us don't live in either one of those extremes. But the reality is we still struggle. Feeling confident in our positions about either our own positions or our country. And even, frankly, the Catholic Church, who's been uh, solidly just war theology for centuries now, is is actually waffling on that. Pope Francis and other leading Catholic authors are disagreeing a lot on this topic right now and some of the writings going on out there throughout history in America. We've seen swings between being hawks and doves, between being active in military role, in a military way in, in conflict around the world or isolationism and we have those swings going on. There's a lot of misunderstanding over this issue as well and actually oversimplification of the deba- debate between just war and pacifism. While I was doing the research for this I got a little bit more of an edu- educated on some of it and I discovered there are at least 29 different forms of pacifism in actual theory and practice today. Today, though, I'm a little less interested in the the politics and philosophical debates. I'm a little more interested in what the Bible and some of the theological arguments are around these, and that's what we're going to talk about so that we can grow in our understanding of what the Bible says and how people think about this topic in that regard and maybe become a little bit less like that rooster and a little more confident in what we believe and informed in what we believe as a Christ follower in the face of evil that involves war. And i got to tell you, I'm really grateful that we get to do this. Uh, some of you asked questions around this when we took questions last spring. That's part of the reason we're doing this series right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited that we get to do as people of faith questions like this in this environment that aren't that easy and fun to do. They're not real motivational moments, but I'm glad we get to do this, that we want to be real because these are real issues we deal with on a regular basis. Now, up front, I'm going to tell you my bias. My bias is that I I land in the just war theology arena. I'm going to do my best to present the pacifist side because I do believe that God actually calls people to be pacifists. I don't think this is an either-or question that we're dealing with today. I think some people are actually called to be pacifists. And I do believe absolutely that we need to understand this pacifist theology because without it, we will tend to not make just war decisions because we will not be restrained enough in how we approach this. So let me start by explaining how people look at pacifism and uh, specifically from the Bible. The first known use of the word is actually 1902. Uh, It was an English equivalent to a French word that simply meant opposition to war. Passy actually means peace. So a pacifist is someone who is devoted to peace. Their commitment to peace is stands above all other commitments in their life. Biblical pacifists, when you you read them, they actually don't like the word pacifist, a lot of them, because they aren't passive. They would define themselves more in terms of Martin Luther King's idea of peaceful resistance. Even in the face of lynchings and beatings and unjust imprisonment, people were to demonstrate peacefully. And they would argue that there is, and as was proven through Martin Luther King's leadership, tremendous optimism. For God to bring change through pacifism, even in the face of great evil. Now, the biblical underpinnings for pacifism can be summed up in four statements. First one is this, Jesus' love command. And we talked about this last week in the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, Jesus says. And Jesus clearly says that love is the center of everything. He equates loving your neighbor as yourself with loving God, meaning you can't do one without the other. You can't hate your neighbor and still love God. And Jesus and Paul both say that that love needs to extend to our enemies as well. And since Jesus says all the law and the prophets... Hang on these two commands, the, 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 on these two commands to love. Then, then, then this must be the primary guiding principle in everything we do. And the conclusion is: therefore, love can never, ever be a secondary ethic to any kind of justification for violence or war. The second biblical tenet that passive theology puts forward is this: Christians are called to be counterculture, not the power politics people. Jesus himself claimed to be a king, and yet he refused to play the power politics. His disciples and followers all came to him saying, Jesus, would you just become the political leader and win the day and overthrow the Romans? But Jesus refused to do that. Instead, Jesus painted a picture of influence and change that is radically different than how we tend to first operate in our world today. In Mark 10, Jesus said this, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man, and remember that term Son of Man is a messianic title. Jesus is claiming to be the King of the Jews when he says this. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus points his disciples away from the influence of political power politics and sword politics to influence people by caring for them and serving them one at a time, which is really in line with how we talk about our mission here of living life as friends with faith. Getting to know people and serving them one at a time. It's how we talk about each of us having our own, having the five we're praying for, the people who are away from church or not believing in God yet that we're looking for ways who disagree with us to serve and care for them and love them one at a time. Many pacifist theologians would take this argument a step further and say that the Old Testament is in fact they would say a failure of nation uh, an example of the failure of nation state of sword centered politics in its failure to bring peace to truly solve anything and we can easily illustrate that i mean Ishmael and Isaac the Isaac the founder of the, uh, of Israel was uh, were brothers and they've hated each other and fought each other still today for 3800 years they still hate each other and fight each other war leads to a vicious never-ending cycle of revenge. And so the argument is that Jesus calls us not to political dominance as influence, but to influence through walking side by side with others, caring for them, serving them, loving them, even doing that possibly to death toward our enemies. And the reality is that's exactly how the early church lived for the first three centuries after Jesus. And look at the influence that they had, changing one of the greatest empires in all of history in 300 years through that kind of life. Third, Jesus' teaching communicates tremendous optimism, they would argue, for the potential of human faithfulness to active pacifism. All you have to look for is is the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous sermons. And in that, he says what? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. See, those who embody the values of loving, active, pacifist way of life, a peace-centered way of life, have tremendous reward, Jesus says, and can expect to live life with tremendous optimism for the difference that can be made in living that way. Therefore, to Pacifist Christian authors Grimsrud and Early conclude this, they say, So when Jesus calls upon his followers to love their neighbors, to reject the tyrannical patterns of leadership among the kings of the earth, to share generously with those in need, to offer forgiveness 70 times 7 times, he actually expected that this could be done. When Jesus called followers to make kindness and love even for enemies... The kind of priority that can never be overridden by some other value. He expected that this indeed would be possible. Finally, the pastor's theology is also grounded in the cross as our model. I mean, after all, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to what? You need to take up your cross and follow me, right? And since Jesus refused to take up the sword to free people or defend people against justice, then the argument is then that we are to follow in that same example because the cross set a new law, a new way, a perfect way to live into being for us. Now, all these biblical principles the pacifists use to support their conclusion are essentially true, aren't they? Love is a guiding principle, a primary principle in all we do. We are called to be primarily counterculture instead of being synonymous with the power politics of our culture. In fact, I would argue that the tone of Christian power politics over the last 30 years has done tremendous damage to the advance of the gospel in the U.S. You see it in the exit interviews of the nuns, the people who have said now that they no longer hold any religious affiliation. You see the damage of the power politics there. And we are to be willing to lay down our lives in love, even for our enemies. So that, in a nutshell, is how the pacif- pacifist sees the Bible supporting their conclusion. And i got to say, I agree with pretty much most of their, almost all of their theological reflections. Peaceful resistance and radical love are really what Jesus calls us to But I don't see those theological reflections leading to the same ultimate conclusion. Why? First, because pacifists rely on a view of the work of the cross that does not fully take into account the purpose of Jesus going to the cross. Think about it. Jesus went to the cross because he was fundamentally dealing with what? Sin and death. So he had to face death head-on. He had to be that perfect, sinless Lamb of God in order to pay for sin perfectly for all of humanity by dying on the cross. So Jesus' teaching about why he went to the cross, and Paul's teaching both agree that that, that Jesus didn't pick up the sword because his specific mission was fundamentally about not changing the social and political order. It was fundamentally about changing the power of sin across all social and political boundaries. Many who put forth the passive theology also say that the Old Testament, the existence of wars and was really God putting up with the imperfection of humanity, and, and he didn't really want it, but he just kind of put up with it in the Old, in the old Testament, and that Jesus now has shown us a more perfect way, and we must view, therefore, those Old Testament uh, Examples of war as being no longer relevant to us today. There's also a problem with that theologically for two reasons. It, it encompasses a misunderstanding of the relationship between the Old and the New Testament and what the cross did and the role of the cross. It also doesn't address the issue that post-cross, uh, the imperfection of human- humanity still remains. And so you have to ask yourself, why would God's approach to imperfection and sin in humanity now change fundamentally in character than it was in the Old Testament? So let's go back to that first question. What's changed by the cross of Jesus for us? It is something new. It is something better. It is something perfect. And it's simply this. It is the perfection of an offering for all of sin, once and for all, securing pure Full forgiveness that can be offered to all as a gift. It's not automatic. We don't get it just because it's happened. It's this gift that we still have to receive. We still have to individually repent. We still have to individually choose that we're going to follow Jesus. But just like in the old, that's just like it was in the Old Testament. People still had to choose in the Old Testament. They just didn't have a perfect sacrifice that would end that discussion forever for them. But they also chose in the Old Testament not to follow God a lot of times. Not to receive the forgiveness then, just as we choose to not receive the forgiveness now. And sin continues, even today, to have rampant, unrestrained effect in our world all too often. And we clearly see in the Old Testament God affirming war as righteous, a last resort. If you look at some of the prophets, he talks about that repeatedly, how war is being used by him to try to get people to leave their sin and to stop the damaging spread of sin that's going unrestrained and to create motivation for repentance and change. So did God really change in a fundamental way between the Old and the New Testament and how He thinks about love, about humanity, about sin, about judgment and war? The answer is no. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this patient God, this amazingly loving God far beyond anything we would ever be in our own mind towards situations around us. I mean, again, we've talked about this before. There's one instance where it specifically says God chose not to judge now, and we see him judging that nation 400 years later. Why? Because their sin was not full. God was giving them repeated chance after chance after chance after patient, gracious chance for 400 years, hoping they would restrain their sin by repenting and receiving his forgiveness, and they didn't. Is it a correct reading of the Old Testament that God simply put up with war? that can justify a pacifist position today? Well, certainly God put up with war. I mean, He didn't create it. He didn't intend it to be. The sin of humanity is what led led to all the pain and the evil and the war and all the disease and all the conflict in our world today. God's original creation did not have that present, nor will His ultimate recreation at the end of time have sin and pain, including war. They will all be erased in the end. But in the context of free will... And a God who is patient in trying to bring his people to repentance and healing. We also see a God who uses government to restrain evil. And a God who removes his restraining hand on the sin going on and allows the sin to take its natural course of pain, hoping people will (laughs) repent of it. And even times where God actively dictates judgment through war to judge and remove or prevent evil and the spread of it, or to create a moment where people hit bottom and decide they want to change, hopefully finding the motivation to turn to him. I mean, so why would God's approach to managing the infectious spread of sin be different now, just because he made a perfect sacrifice for all time through Jesus? His character hasn't changed. He's always been the same. God's overall purpose is to see many people saved. And so, in fact, God says, I want everyone to be saved. I don't want anyone to be left out. But free will is still a reality. And there are times when sin is so great and such a cancer that to prevent it from taking more and more people down, God allows for or actively pursues judgment even through war. Now, the healthy thing about the pacifist theology is this. It needs to be something that's thoroughly embedded in each and every one of us as a priority way that we approach life, whether we take the name pacifist or not. Just as Romans 12 says, as we read before, I'll read it again. If 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 it is possible, meaning it might not be possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome; be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And see, without such a strong message for peace and sacrificial love, even willing to, at times, lay our lives down to express that love to people, that Christ's love to people, if we don't have that strong of a message, we will be driven by our own feelings. We will take wrath into our own hands and leave no room for God's wrath because we'll express that wrath rather than be submitted to God's way and to Him. Yet there is a time for just war. The use of violent force is not counter to love. Sometimes it embodies great love. Now, if you study just war theory, you realize that it actually was most concisely first put into into words by people who weren't followers of Jesus. It was Plato and Aristotle, but Augustine and many theologians over the last 2,000 years have spent a lot of time developing this from a Christian perspective as well. Just war uh, uh, theory and theology basically says this. For a war to be just, it must meet all of the following criteria. And I'm going to give you those criteria. War must, first of all, have a just cause. It must be for the defense of one's nation or people, or to intervene on behalf of an innocent third party against evil or an unjust aggressor. So just war must never be driven by economic, religious, colonial, or imperialistic goals, is where this comes down. In most, in the most Christian sense, the leaders must not only think of that, but it also must have a sense of God directing them that this is right and just in that moment. It can never be a personal response, and it can never be a response out of pure retaliation or retribution. There's a guy named Nabil Karishi. He's associated with Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite apologists, and he guest wrote an article for the Huffington Post recently. And in it, he actually quoted Dabiq, which is ISIS, uh, the ISIS political official magazine that they publish on a regular basis. The feature article of the, of the September issue of this Dabiq uh, was an article that basically was why we hate Christians, Jews, and everybody in the West and want to kill you. That was the feature article. And in ISIS's own official words, here are the six reasons why they fight. Because we do not believe in Islamic monotheism, Speaking to us, we do not believe it. Because we do not obey Allah because of the atheists among us, because of our crimes against the religion of Islam, because of our crimes against Muslims, because of our invasion of Muslims' lands. And then the ISIS author concludes his article, in the featured article of this edition, by saying this. He says, although some might argue that your foreign policies are the extent of what drives our hatred, which we see that in the media, we see that argument regularly, that's the main reason, they say this particular reason for hating you is secondary. Hence, The reason we address it at the end of the above list. And his conclusion is this. Our primary reason for hating you will not cease to exist until you embrace Islam. ISIS completely fits within the just cause for a just war. Does it fit all the rest of them? Second, just war is only a just just if it is declared by the right authority. This leans back biblically to Romans 13, which we've read in similar passages that says, God gives authority to governing leaders, and it is the right and responsibility of government to protect, defend, and execute justice on behalf of the people. A just war decision also has to be filtered through the principle of proportionality. Will the destructiveness of the war outweigh the enhancement of human and godly values? Will the benefits of peace and freedom gained by the war outweigh the financial and human costs of the war? The Catholic Church has, I think, a great way to talk about this. Their official statement is, The use of arms must not produce evils or disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. Pardon me. Now, this clearly makes logical sense, right? I mean... If you're sure to lose the war, then surrender and putting up with the suffering is better than annihilation, right? If the cost of the war is greater than the good that the war will could potentially produce, then war is not a good answer. And this tenant isn't anti-biblical like it probably through a really convoluted way, come up with lots of verses that would give us an idea that this fits within the biblical text. Of our, but I, there's no one single verse that I could find that says, yeah, this is true. It's just more of a bigger theological picture that the, that the theologians argue. So I don't have a single verse for this one. Just war also must have a goal of peace. In other words, just war is not just the strategy to win, but a strategy to produce a better, stronger, lasting peace. So the question We have to ask ourselves before going to war is, can peace be achieved? This is a still a big question, isn't it? Especially with all the Middle East conflicts, it's really wrestled with a lot, isn't it? I mean, remember the Iraq War, everybody's questions about going in, whether peace could be achieved because the Kurds and the Sunnis and the Shias have been fighting each other for centuries and, and that country is divided by them. And even if we liberate them, can we be? are we able to achieve a peace among them or will we simply create a power vacuum and unleash sectarian and tribal violence? This is a real difficult, legitimate question. It was the same question asked about Bosnia. It was the same question that people have debated about Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Sudan, and why we have gone or not gone into different places. And is peace achievable through war? And the final tenet of just war theory and theology is this, that war is a last resort. Nonviolent means of persuasion should always be exhausted with patience over a reasonable amount of time before resorting to war. In fact, just war theory and theology is actually not meant to promote war, right or good. It is more so to restrain and eliminate war to the greatest extent possible. Now, given that each and every one of these tenets I just laid out before you must be met in order for it to be considered a just war, it's no wonder that there are so many differing opinions about whether we should be in Syria and whether we should fight ISIS or whether we should be in the war with, uh, against Assad or, or whether the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya in the past were just or not. I mean, the first tenet can certainly be met by ISIS, but, but, but is lasting peace possible in the given climate? Tenet three. Can the end result be better than the current situation? Tenet two. serious questions will the next leader of that country be any better or is the loss of life and destruction of the uh, of property in the end will it result in a better thing for the lives of people there or will it just make things worse or or will it create such a such an antagonistic environment that the bitterness left behind from the war creates a fertile breeding ground for isis to continue to recruit people or other terrorist organizations these are seriously difficult questions has everything been done peaceably that can be done. Ten at four, the last resort, or the five, the last resort. I mean, could sanctions or other non-military means still be powerful enough to help the situation without force or without more force going in? Could a no-fly zone in the past have been a good answer in UN peacekeepers to prevent the mass exodus of the refugees that we're now having to face and figure out how do we help all these desperate people in the world right now? And then the just war theory doesn't stop there. It goes beyond that, that if war is declared, there's also a way that it must be done. And it starts out again with this term proportionality. It's this good weighed against evil and how even the decisions of what we do when prosecuting the war are done. So an example of this is in World War II. A whole bunch of islands were just bypassed that were full of Japanese soldiers because it wasn't worth the cost and it wasn't absolutely necessary. The second tenet of how things are done is this tenet of discrimination, sometimes also called non-combatant immunity, meaning that those who are civilians or those who are injured or those who are POWs should be treated with dignity and care. And so like in World War II, there was a lot of debate around, did we do this justly or not? Was the carpet bombing of Germany or was the selection of nuclear targets in Japan just or not? There's people that would debate. They weren't because there was too much civilian casualty in that. And the, and the tenet I think today is this one is even harder for us today with with terrorists using civilians as shields, and the question is what are acceptable losses, civilian losses, that allows one to still live within this tenet of just war and. Because uh, this this tenet was never intended to mean that there would not be loss of civil, civilian life or casualties. It was just that the priority of limiting to the greatest extent reasonable measure possible was to be implemented in how things were done. And finally, the tenet of the greater good is part of this as well. Even in the way we prosecute war, the greater good must always be a deciding factor in tactical decisions. Again, in our day... Primarily of a war on terror, where terrorist armies are embedded in civilian areas, putting their stuff in the middle of kids' schools and preventing civilians from leaving war zones, and countries are fraught with centuries of tribal and sectarian religious hatred. The decisions of this nature are harder than ever, aren't they? And the lesson for us here, I think, is once again, there's a little bit of a simple lesson. How can we lead by living our lives as Christ would in this regard? How can we show love and offer forgiveness and respect the dignity of even the most evil people as people made in God's image, who God wants to see them saved? Because I think Nabil Qureshi is right when he notes this. He says, a theology of love is the only way to change a theology of hate. And we've seen that where some terrorists coming to faith in Jesus are now talking about that power of that sacrificial theology of love being what brought them there. In fact, there's a guy named David Garrison who's one of the foremost researchers of Muslims coming to faith around the world. And he writes a story uh, of of a man, uh, Akbar al uh, coming to faith in Jesus. He met him in a Pakistani refugee camp. And he, and he asked him, what brought you to faith? And this is his answer. He says, my name at birth was... Muhammad Akbar, which means Muhammad is the greatest. Between the wars, I was looking for a job, and one day I came up on a cinema showing a movie about the life of the prophet Isa, which is their way of saying Jesus. I watched the movie alone, and I learned many things that I did not know. I saw how they beat Jesus and nailed him to the cross, and I said to myself, Now Isa will call down fire from heaven to destroy them. And instead, Isa looked down at them with compassion and said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And in my heart I said, that is for me. And that's when I became a follower of Isa, and I changed my name to Akbar al masih The Messiah is the greatest. We must be slow to war. We must be rich in sacrificial love. Some of us are probably going to be pacifists who maybe even give our lives to demonstrate that love. Even willing to risk our lives to give that love. And when we do go to war, we must pursue it in a way that shows the love and kindness of Christ to all people, even the ones we're at war with, whenever, however, in whatever way possible, we can show that, even in the midst of that, so that we follow the Scripture as much as it is possible with us. And it won't always be possible, but as much as it is possible with us, at every opportunity, we are about peace, about love, about restoration, and war is the last result. Would you welcome B.J. Dinsmore. He's actually a military chaplain candidate who's part of our church here who's going to come, and he'll take the first question for us. Welcome, B.J. Thanks, Ross.
1: Uh, Can you all hear me okay? Is the mic on? Yeah. No? No? Do you wanna use this one? Okay. Alright. Um, there was a, uh, a question that was asked <clears throat> it says, Can there just be a just for when there are so few actually fair burden or less than one percent of our population in the United States is served in our current complex? Um, that's actually a really good question. Um, that's that's really that 's a good one you um, me uh,
0: uh, i don 't know if just war has anything to do with how many people are actually serving in the military as much as the reasoning to do it and uh, and one of the questions one of the questions as well comes out of saying, so what happens if our nation provides does a does a, a war and, and we don 't think it 's just what what should be our response then and um, that's a challenging one, isn't it? It's a challenging one. I think our response should be at least to vote, to try to get people in to office who will do just war, to write and try to get this, those decisions to be just. And uh, if you're in the military, you're probably going to end up needing to obey and but prosecute the war according to just just war rules and hold that standard because it's so easy. I mean, everybody points to there never has been a just war because people don't always follow the just war rules. There's always abuses, and that's right. War is a horrible thing, and there are people who don't handle it, and they do abusive things. They violate just war rules, and every single conflict on every side of the equation, every it's always there. And so can our people who are followers of Christ in the military model that and help restrain the un- injustice going on in the process of it. And I think that really is the role of the Christian in those environments, to be that person who is a voice for just war and restraint. Do you have another question you want to deal with?
1: Yeah. Um, there was another one that, that came through, and it says, how does this all apply to defending family with le- lethal force? Um you know, that's, that's actually really good because not only, you know, we're looking at war on a bigger perspective, but here with our families and, 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 you know, how we handle that, how do we, how do we do, how do we defend them with lethal force? Is that even acceptable as a Christian? Um, and in going through scripture, there are different references in the Old and New Testament that state that, um, we're permitted to have rifles, we're permitted to have guns, but, um, we're not required to have them, um, and there are three things that we are not—we're we're not supposed to shed blood. I mean, that's like one thing that—that's um, like the last resort. So, if we're doing things out of anger, if we're doing it out of anger or any malice or intent, or um, or if we're doing it out of jealousy, or if we're doing it out of um, uh, for selfish causes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you know. Uh, then we shouldn't use defense. But in a case that somebody comes in and is willfully wanting to murder or harm your family, um, God doesn't speak against that. You know, I think you know we're supposed to be able to to do that, and that's where we rest in God's grace and know that He has us.
0: So here's a question: Who gets to decide the, the greater good? And that's been. Uh, delegated to the people who are in authority, and they will be held accountable for that decision that 's what the Bible teaches in Romans thirteen It teaches it in uh, first Peter, I believe it is as well and other places uh, as well on that. And so some, there was also a question about the fact that uh, I presented a really, really strong biblical support for pacifism, but not as strong for, for just war. And let me just say this. Uh, the just war support is really more theological in terms of the, the misunderstanding of the cross among pacifists and the role and the misunderstanding between Old and New Testament uh, if, if, the only way the pacifists argue that the Old Testament can't be relevant is to make it irrelevant by the way they look at the cross, but that's not really a good theology. Uh, so you have to understand that God is the same in the Old and the New. And, uh, the fact of the matter is, um, Jesus and Paul both talk about soldiers commending them, but they don't ask them to stop their, their profession. And you could also look at Revelation, and and there's the, 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 the picture there is of human involvement in the war with God in there. So that whole theme of last resort, God prefers not for war. He didn't create it. He hates it. It makes him cry. It's horrible. It's awful. But sin unrestrained, he will allow it and judge it. And dictate it sometimes so another question you want to deal with or should we wrap
1: i mean there's a couple i could go for it okay one more um, so this question was was actually asked earlier it says you mentioned uh, the sermon on the mount could you also discuss the sermon on the plain it speaks directly to sacrificial love um, and that comes from uh, luke chapter 6 27 through 30 and verses also in the same chapter 32 through 36 um Basically, when I was in Iraq in 2006 and 2007, um, you know, there were tough decisions and and situations that I had faced um, to defeat the enemy in in ways that um, are really hard to deal with. Um, And so in that that regard, after we had an engagement, after we had a a firefighter or whatever we had out there, sacrificially, it would be hard to to give to your enemy. So one way I did that is to pray for my enemy after, you know, the engagement transpired. Um, another way that I could also give back was I was able to give um, some food and, and snacks through MREs uh, to some of the children in the streets and also to some of the, the parents out there as well. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, one way that, that we can truly um, sacrifice is we're also sacrificing for our other soldiers to our left and right and to keep our country safe, but we're also sacrificing for the people that we're defending in that country that we're in. Um, you know, those, those terrorists were out there bullying people um, for their cause, strictly evil purposes, and we were there defending them, so that's a way that we can technically sacrifice for our enemies as well.
0: Okay, one last question. Thank you, BJ. Is 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 the if the just war, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. If the just war requires theology requires a the prospect of peace, but Islam requires worldwide conversion, how should we proceed? And that's the reason I think it we proceed potentially with just war against ISIS, but they're, like even Nabil Karish, the the Islamic background he was in, the sect he was a part of was actually pacifist. And uh, there's everything in between in the Islamic world as well. And so that's a really challenging one. you got to be careful to not paint all Muslims, and I think we all know that with the same stroke. Um, because they are as widely varied as we are in, in pacifist to war, hawkish to dove, I hope that what we share today will do four things for you it 'll give you grace towards our political leaders for the difficulty of these decisions because they are really, really challenging i 'm not sure any of us want to ma- want those that load on our own shoulders. And I hope it will help you in your political voice and in your political vote in a way that you 'll help hold our leaders to just war that we will not have wars fought for selfish gains or imperialistic gains. On a personal level, I hope it helps you settle your conscience a little bit so that you land and find a place a little bit more strength and peace about what you believe and why you believe it. And, and I hope most of all that it really helps every single one of us realize those areas of our lives where we find ourselves falling into anger and bitterness toward our enemy, rather than allowing ourselves to continue to press into figuring out ways that we can show love and grace and mercy to the greatest extent possible and pursue peace at all, when at all possible, in every situation possible. Um, as we close, I want to pray. It's the 15th anniversary of 9-11. I want to thank again uh, BJ and all the other guys who have served in the military. All the law enforcement people have served for us to protect us and defend our freedoms. And I want to pray for them because they've seen horrible things that God never intends for them to see that uh, is still just a part of this world and a lot of them still suffer from it. So I want to pray for them. I also want to pray for our leaders for wisdom, that even if our leaders don't currently have the wisdom, that God will somehow funnel them into the place of abiding by just war and pursuing peace in the best ways possible. So, Lord, we just thank You for Your patience with us. Lord, we're sorry for the bitterness and the anger that we carry and that we foster as people in this world. Lord, we ask that Your forgiveness would be something that would become so beautiful and infectious to this world that it would cause wars that are currently going on and carnage that's currently going on and abuse that's currently going on to cease all over the world. Lord, we pray for those who have fought on our behalf, who have served against evil on our behalf in horrible situations. We pray that you would bring healing to their hearts, their minds, the memories that still plague them, the fears that still crop up, the the nightmares that come. Lord, would you bring healing and peace to their lives. And Lord, would you... Lead us as a people as we vote, as we speak, and as we hold our leaders accountable to a just war, where there can be very, very, very few wars and where peace and love and kindness and generosity change people's hearts worldwide. Would you lead our leaders to the right decisions? Come, Lord. We long for the day when you return and all this stuff will be ended. We never have to face this again. But Lord, in the meantime, would you come and help us be people of peace who represent you well. Lord, that we could see many who are terrorists in our day come to faith in Jesus and many who are struggling and hurt and wounded and displaced because of terror come to faith in you because we love like you. We love even our enemies. Would you just stand and join in worship and allow that kind of a heart to continue in worship? Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag quest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.